Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are in the Gospel According to Moses, the Genesis series, and we're on Lesson 56. Our focus in Lesson 56 is going to be on Genesis 25, verses 7 through 10, where we read about the fact that Abraham died, lived a fruitful, good life. Now, Abraham is the one and only one chosen by Yahweh, by the Lord, by Adonai. And we read about, or we were studied of that in Lesson 22, that Avram, his name hadn't been changed yet in Lesson 22, <clears throat> he takes the stage for the first time. This is back in Genesis 12. But the Torah is silent. Rabbis aren't. But Torah is silent as to the reasons why God chose him. But now Abraham's life is over. In Judaism, a person's death is more important than a person's birth. I want you to consider some statements by Rabbi Abraham Cohen, and he wrote a book called Every Man's Talmud, and it is an amazing scholarly work which gives especially us Christians, an overview, a synopsis of the Talmud. The Talmud is huge. Volumes after volumes. It's like an encyclopedia. It started out with the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. The rabbis got together at a place called Yavne, which is now called Tel Aviv. And at Yavne, they decided collect, started to collect all of the oral law. They already had the written Torah. They had the written Bible the Old Testament. But what they want to do was to collect all of the laws together and all the additional laws that they had established. And that was called the Mishnah. From there, the rabbis debated about how to apply those laws, how to actually administer them, uh, debate their meaning. And that happened, again, the course over hundreds of years. That was called the Gemara. And the debates of the rabbis along with the legal books, you might say, of the Mishnah finally turned out to be the Talmud, which was basically published in two versions, roughly 500 AD, if you call it, when the Babylonian Talmud was available and then the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, Rabbi Abraham Kohn states about his book and the purposes of it, he states, while there is now no lack of books which regale the English reader with selections from the Talmud, tales from the Talmud, and wise sayings of the rabbis, there is no work which attempts a comprehensive survey of the doctrine of this important branch of Jewish literature. To supply that want is the task undertaken in the present volume. Its aim is to provide a summary of the teachings of the Talmud on religion, ethics, folklore, and jurisprudence. So for us, you guys, as disciples of Rabbi Jesus, this becomes a very important resource for us. Because Jesus was in the midst of a Jewish culture, Second Temple Judaism, as it's called. And now we may clearly disagree with various Jewish beliefs and ideas. But by studying the Talmud and understanding the concepts and thought 
thoughts of what was going on in Jesus' Jesus' day. It helps us reconnect to those days of Jesus' culture. So with regards to how Judaism looks upon death as more important than life, Rabbi Cohen goes on, A sane and wholesome view of life and death is to be found in the treatment of the text. Better is the day of death than the day of one's birth. This is in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1. When a person is born, all rejoice. When he dies, all weep. But it should not be so. Not in Judaism. On the contrary, when a person is born, there should not be rejoicing because nobody knows what will be his lot and career, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad. When, on the other hand, he dies, it is an occasion for rejoicing if he departed with a good name and left the world peacefully. There's a parable of two ships making their way through the ocean, one leaving the harbor and the other entering it. People rejoiced over the ship on its departure, but not over the one which was arriving. A clever man stood there and said to them, My opinion is the opposite of yours. You should not rejoice over the ship which has set out, as nobody knows what lies in store for it, what rough seas and storms it may encounter. But when a ship reaches its harbor, all should rejoice that it arrived safely. Now for us, when we read the Gospels, one of the amazing things is there are only a very few number of verses on the birth of Jesus. There's 20 in Matthew, roughly, and 21 in Luke. That's it. 41 verses on the birth. However, there's 156 in Matthew, 120 in Mark, 158 in Luke, alone over 300 verses on his death. And on top of that, in the Gospel of John, in studying it, it's about 247 verses alone. So this goes to show the Jewish nature of the literature of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here, these deeply religious Jewish men are emphasizing the death over the birth. So the ship has come home. Abraham has died and in those verses of Exodus 25, 7 through 10, he was a righteous man that lived a good life. He's buried with his wife Sarah at the cave of Machpelah. So now, what we want to do is present a eulogy. A eulogy of Abraham. In lesson 22 of this series, we asked, Why him? What did God see in Abraham? And like the religious Jews then and now, we rejoice in his death. We rejoice because it's the death of a righteous man, a righteous man before God and man. He is the father of our faith. You go to Genesis 15:5. Remember, Abraham is under the stars outside with God. And God shows him the stars of the heavens. And God says to him, so will your descendants be. But in Galatians 3.28, Paul picks up on that. And Paul teaches us that we who belong to Christ are the descendants of Abraham. In Romans 4.16, that those are of the faith 
which is us, have the same faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So let's try now and consider why Abraham. Let us now, at his passing, see how Abraham relates to us, to our walk with Jesus. Let us rejoice in our father Abraham and try to be his real descendants by faith. Because God said, through your seed, Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the seed. He is the blessing for all nations. And we are the seed as well to take the blessing, to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. So in Genesis 15, 6, by Abraham's reliance on Yahweh, Adonai, his total trust in Adonai 24-7, it was credited to him as righteous, righteousness. So may it be for us as well. So come, let us go to the cave at Machpelah. Let us allow God's Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to see how this man's life is the foundation of the gospel. Not only did God present the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel is in the Torah. The gospel was written by Moses, the gospel according to Moses, which takes us to the coming of the blessing for all nations. It takes us to the coming of the birth of Jesus. Come, let's go study. again, with all the Torah resources that I have, both Jewish and Christian, uh, God has really opened my eyes to an awful lot of things. And so for Abraham, his story is bigger than we think. It is much bigger. It's much bigger than I thought. So I think it's appropriate that we take a look at three verses again and to let God expand our understanding as we remember Abraham at his death. So let's go into, I'm going to use the Fox's translation tonight of the Torah. And I'm going into Genesis 25, verses 7 through 10. Genesis 25, verses 7 through 10. And just as an aside, I use a lot of different translations. I happen to have the, new S, uh, the NASB here with me tonight. I have uh, the ESV. I have Fox's translation of the Torah. Uh, none of them... Uh, are perfect. So they're all imperfect. And so I just use Fox's translation because he tries to really uh, translate into English directly from the Hebrew and tries to do the best job he can. So that's always very interesting to take a look at. Anyway, so we're at Genesis 25, 7 through 10, and it says, Now these are the days and years of the life of Abraham, which he lived. A hundred years and seventy years and five years. Then he expired. He died. Avraham died at a good, ripe age, old and satisfied in days, and was gathered to his kinspeople. And we talked about in the last lesson, in lesson two, that gathered to his kinspeople, when we expand upon that, uh, through the life of Ishmael, through uh, 
through uh, Jacob, through Moses, that it really strongly hints at the afterlife. And so all of a sudden we have 3,500 years ago, okay, Moses writing this and he's telling us there's an afterlife because he died, he's gathered to his people, and then he's buried. All of them, they're died, gathered to his people, something happens after death, okay, like Jacob, he was mummified, okay, and it's years later that he's buried because it says he died and then he was gathered to his people. Next events, mummified, etc., etc., and it's years later he's buried. And so uh, in the commentaries like Sarna in the JPS Torah commentary or Hertz uh, in his uh, commentary, they talk about the fact this is a discussion of the afterlife. Uh, really fascinating. Anyway, Yitzhak and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, son of Tzohar, the Hittite, that faces Mamre. The field that Avraham had acquired from the sons of Het, they were buried, Avraham, Sarah, and his wife. So tonight, this is sort of like a eulogy of Abraham. Uh, that, that's the only way I can describe it in terms of the definition of what a eulogy is. In other words, it's a statement, it's a description, it's a speech or whatever you, uh, that's reviewing somebody's life, probably for the benefits of that. We're going to take a look at that. And one of the things that happened in term two, which means... Um, uh, many sessions ago last year, in term two, we started with Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, all of a sudden, Abraham, okay, is God. He has an encounter with God, and God promises. That's where the promises are. And we ask ourselves the question, and I ask that question, why Avram? Why then? Now, his name at that, that time was Avram. But the Torah is silent. God seems to know why he picked him, but we don't. In other words, I told you to say, all right, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, forget anything happens, okay, after verse 4 all the way to Revelation 22, okay? Let's say the Bible ended at Genesis 12, 3. And so when we do that, you could say, okay, why did God pick Avram, okay, and later Avram? We have no idea. So the life of Avraham had to play out. And I told you this, as we see his life, we're going to see certain things in his life why God picked him. So, for instance, let's go to Genesis 18, verse 19. And in Genesis 18, verse 19, again from the Fox's translation, God is basically talking, okay? It's, it's like God saying things behind uh, Abraham's back. And God is saying, Indeed, I have known him, in order that he may charge his sons and his household after him, that they shall keep the way of Yahweh to do what is right and just in order that Yahweh may bring upon Avraham what he spoke concerning him. Now it's interesting, I have known him, and the Hebrew word there is Yada. And it's interesting because the Hebrew directly, Fox is doing, he's taking the most common understanding of the word Yada, which means to know. And so the key thing is, I've known him so that he is going to teach his sons and his daughters, his family, and his household. He's going to be a teacher. Now, yada, in terms of its Hebrew conceptual meaning, okay, gives you the idea that you have entered into a deep, close relationship with someone, okay? God is saying, I know this one. I have a relationship with this one. I know lots of things about Abraham. So 
I'm going to go into Hertz, Dr. J.H. Hertz and his uh, uh, commentary on the Torah and the prophets or the Haftorah. And I just want to read a comment about Yada. And he's saying, okay, in Genesis 18, 19, for I have known him. Uh, so he said, for example, I have regard of him. Or I've chosen him. Now, if you think about that, I have known him so well, okay, that he's going to teach. Or I have such a regard for him, or I have chosen him. So like Hirsch would say, these are different ideas, and then he's giving other places in the Bible where yada can mean chosen, to choose, okay? Because it's conceptual in meaning, Hebrew does not have definitions. And that's one thing that it's really hard for we Westerners in, teach, uh, in understanding English. English words all have definitions. Hebrew does not. They have a conceptual meaning. So he's saying this is the idea of chosen, regarding, special relationship, and so on. So on. Um, so, for instance, in Psalm uh, 1, verse 6, I think it says, The Lord regardeth the way of the righteous. The Lord regards. Okay? It doesn't say that. It says, Yada. I have known deeply, okay, the ways of the righteous. I have regard for that. Or another one, um, oh, anyway, that, that's just an example. So the command his children or charge his children. Now, this is an important point from a Jewish perspective. An important doctrine is here taught in connection with the word command, which has played a conspicuous part in Jewish life. It is the sacred duty of the Israelite to transmit the Jewish heritage to his children after him. The last injunction of the true Jewish father to his children is that they walk in the way of the Lord and live lives of probity and goodness. So really interesting to take a look at that because this becomes so critical uh, when we take a look at the Torah uh, and even with Jesus. So yada, uh, I think one good way of describing its, its uh, conceptual meaning is to know, be acquainted with, perceive, okay, and know by experience, okay? Um, so for instance, Adam knew, uh, Adam knew Eve. This is in Genesis 4, okay? And they had a son. So yada, okay, this word about knowledge is talking about sexual intercourse between Adam and Eve, okay? They knew each other. And so this, this idea of that's yada. Or, for instance, Yada can be used to express an unusual talent. Or, uh, for instance, if you're a child prodigy. We'll see this a little bit later on as we continue on in Genesis. Esau has yada with hunting. Okay? I mean, he grew up as a hunter. This, this, he's a child prodigy. Okay? He's got a real good talent with regards to hunting. Or, here's another one. It's an inherent characteristic embedded in a type of person. So here's one from, uh, uh, from Proverbs. The unjust knows no shame. Yada. Okay, they know no shame. In other words, shame, okay, is not even part of the unjust. They just sin and they could care less about it. There's no shame or feeling guilty with regards to that. So, with regards to this, God is saying, I have chosen Abraham... And he's going to be a teacher. Now, this is critical importance. We'll, we'll get into this a little bit more. So this is one of the things that we see 
And there are other places, other types, uh, other versions that you'd have the translation. And uh, I know one of them, I think New American Standard said, the reason why I chose him was because he's going to teach his children. That's why. This is huge. This is huge. He's not just going to be the father of faith, but he's going to teach his children. So that's one aspect. Let's take a look at another aspect. And let me go into Fox's uh, translation. We're going to go into um, Genesis 22.13. In Genesis 22.13, and again, we're in 22 now, so all of a sudden we're part of the binding of Isaac, okay? When God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son. But in verse 13, we read, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw there a ram caught behind in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went, he took the ram and offered it up as an offering in place of his son. And it continues on. Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh sees. You have Jehovah Jireh. Some people say God provides. It doesn't say that. It's an awful translation. Yahweh sees. Uh, Yahweh Yira. That's what it means. Uh, as the saying is today, on Yahweh's mountain it is seen. And Yahweh's messenger called to Avraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I swear, Yahweh's utterance, indeed, because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. So here, th this is quite amazing. Here's a characteristic of Avraham as we take a look at our eulogy. For him, he looks upon his firstborn his only firstborn son of the promise, and he loves his child less than he loves God. That's clear. Matter of fact, I want to use this word. We're going to come to it again. One could say that Isaac was hated by Avraham. Now, I'm going to come to that in a little bit as comparison to God. So let's get to that, and I'll show you what I mean. The Hebrew word for hate is sane. The Strong's number is H8130. And I want to go to two verses that are huge with regards to this idea of hate. So when we're in Genesis 2931, we realize that uh, Jacob, and we're going to get there, he married two women. Okay, Rachel and Leah, and Leah was the one that he got first by a trick because of Laban. And in verse 31, we read this, When Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb while Rachel was barren. And you say, Avraham hated Leah? That makes no sense. Avraham, I mean Jacob. Jacob is a man of the Torah. What does it say in Leviticus 19.18? Now, it hasn't been written yet. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that, that, that's, that refutes God's idea of love. But read the verse before. So when we go to Genesis 29.30, so he came into uh, Rachel also, and he loved Rachel also more than Leah. Now, some of you might have in your verse that Leah was loved less. Okay, now the Hebrew there is... Vaye Achav, Vaye Achav, which means loved and loved. So it's Vaye Achav, mean Leah. There's there's a there's a conjunction in front of her uh, front of her name. It's a an, an an M 
or Amin, okay? So it says, Min Leah. Now that, Ve'ah Ahav, Min Leah. In other words, and she was loved less. Or another way is uh, exclusion. So her love was not the same. It's excluded. It's, it's separate. It's different, okay? And normally loved less, okay? That's what we have. So Leah was not hated. So we have one verse explaining the other. She's not hated. So Sanai, or Sanai, uh, can mean hate, okay? But it can mean in a position of second place as well. So like Isaac, okay, and it's just like Isaac. Isaac, in Abraham's mind, is in second place to God. And that's pretty clear. Because God says, you will sacrifice your son. He, no questions. He's just going to do it. So he loved his son less than he loves God. Now, with these two things in mind, what I want to do is I want to see the constancy of God. And over the course of reading Genesis 25 over and over and over again, again, we're in the new year, so we're already in the new Torah cycle. And I remember we just read Noah or the uh, parasha of Noah. So we're reading about the flood and everything. And it's always fun to pray before I read Torah and study Torah. And so uh, I said, Lord, I've got so many notes on these chapters. What else is new? There's nothing new. Well, what could there be? I mean, I've got, it's, it's covered, right? I've got so many notes on this. So I started reading. <laughs> I have to start teaching this course all over again, okay? There are so many things that we miss, or I'll write it in the book. So we want to go into the constancy of God. We want to see God the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And you guys, this has happened to me ever. I, I, seeing the Bible as one book, all the way from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, Ever since the first Bible study trip I took with Ray Vanderland, I mean every day with that guy, okay? Every day. I mean, his instruction was fantastic. It changed my life. We were there for two weeks. I remember the third day, and I said, it can't get any better than this. We got to the fourth day. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we went deeper and deeper and deeper. So... For me there, that was the beginning of my reconnection to the Jewish roots of our faith through archaeology, geography, history, customs, and culture, and even the languages of the ancient Near East. The Lord opened my eyes to hear and see, and that's why I'm so on fire to teach this. I, I really am. Just the Torah, okay? Because Jesus says, guess what? I'm in there. Where? Okay? I want to see God all the way from Genesis Chapter 1, all the way to Revelation 22. He opened my eyes, and I'm seeing and hearing and understanding the text as if I was the one who first heard it. Because what I'm trying to do is put myself back there 3,400 years ago, 3,000 years ago, in context. Okay, That's what I'm attempting to do. And this is how he has showed himself to me. So let's do this. Now, we took two things of Avram, right? He's a teacher. This is very important. And the second thing is he hated Isaac or loved less. Isaac was in second place. Let's put that aside now. I'll be back to it because now I've got to go and got to ask, what is a disciple? So we're now in the New Testament. 
So we're moving 3,400 years up. Actually, from the time of Abraham, probably 4,000, 4,200 years, something like that. Now, so with regards to what a disciple is, what I want to do is I want to talk about what a disciple is and not what the church says a disciple is. So I'm going into Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible by David Noel Friedman, who's the editor. Very much a Christian document in terms of the fact of uh, uh, a Christian resource. Here's their definition of a disciple. And it's a very nice, dis very nice definition. It's, it's not wrong, but it, they, they missed the, some stuff. A follower, a pupil, or adherent of a teacher or religious leader. That's a disciple. A follower, a pupil, or, or adherent of a teacher. Jewish and Greco-Roman history and literature provide examples of respected figures who gather disciples in order to teach and lead them. In the New Testament, the Greek word is mathetis, is used often of followers of Jesus, although it's used also to describe followers of other figures, the disciples of John, of Moses, etc. General distinction is made between Jesus' disciples and the crowds, okay, um, and the former as committed followers and the latter as onlookers not seriously attached to him. But here's the point. It says, the follower, a pupil, or adherent of a teacher or religious leader. President Trump has committed voters. And I know President Trump and the Republicans are counting on those who are part of the Trump group to come out and vote and get other people to vote. The Democrats, okay, they have their uh, committed followers. Matter of fact, in June... 86% of American blacks would vote Democratic. Okay? They were committed. Oh, really? That changed. Since June, okay, 36, uh, oh, what did I say? I, uh, yeah, 84%, 14%, yeah, 14% were basically saying they were Republican. But everything changed. Since June, 36% of American blacks say they will vote for Trump. Whoa. Committed? Why? I wonder. And I don't know. And I don't know this for sure. But when you hear the statement about black unemployment and jobs and that type of stuff, I remember that most of elections, most elections, every elections, are, is basically one thing and one thing only, the economy. Period. It's very interesting. And the economy is going crazy. So anything they see. So the, Trump, the Democrats are worried because some of their committed disciples, okay, are abandoning ship. So they're not committed. Matter of fact, Trump voters are not disciples, okay? Democrats and their voters are not disciples. Hamas, the terror group, they have committed followers who will die for their cause. They're so committed. Hamas, the terrorist organization, is more related to what a disciple is in Jesus' day than being committed as a Republican or committed as a Democrat. Very interesting. The first century, a Jewish disciple was called a Talmid. That's male. If you're a female Talmid, you're a Talmidah. So Talmid, male, Talmidah, uh, man. And 
They were uh, a Talmud of a sage, not a rabbi. They didn't have rabbis in Jesus' day. You'd say, well, wait a minute, they called Jesus rabbi. No, they didn't say he is a rabbi, okay? Rabbi in Jesus' day was my master. That's what it basically means. My master Torah teacher. My master instructor of how to live Torah, okay? And you are wise beyond any type of human capability. You're, you've been blessed with the Spirit of God. Therefore, you're a sage. So Jesus actually is a sage of Judaism, and it just so happens uh, one things that they would compliment him on, you're Ravi, my master, okay? I follow my sage. So I, I will use the fact that Jesus was a rabbi uh, while we're going through this, that's very familiar to us, but in actuality, he was a sage. He was not a rabbi. Rabbi comes after the temple's destroyed. Anyway, um, so we talked about this. Mathetes is the Greek word used in the New Testament, and it means a learner, a pupil, a follower, supposedly a committed student. And Greeks had committed students. There were Mathetes, okay, of Plato and Mathetes of Aristotle. Would they die for Plato? Would they die for Aristotle? Probably not, okay? Now, for rabbis or sages like Jesus, there were a couple of aspects for a disciple of a sage, for a disciple of a rabbi. One of them was that they wanted to learn the rabbi's yoke. Now, this comes from the Talmud. Bless God for the Jewish rabbis, and they're coming and trying to give us the historical background and context of what a disciple was. They wanted to learn the yoke of a rabbi. Now, the yoke of a rabbi, when you study commentaries or you go into like the JPS Torah commentary or, or so on, this is a rabbi's unique way of teaching the Torah and his interpretation. A unique way. Did Jesus have a yoke? In other words, did he have certain things that he was doing to the Torah in a unique way? Are you kidding? This is amazing. I'll give you one example. I know of no, now this will be interesting, this is a challenge to go out, okay? I know of no rabbi, I, ha I have not seen this in any Jewish literature, okay, that the greatest commandment in the Torah is to hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. Jesus says that's the greatest commandment. I cannot find one rabbi, not one, that says that that's the greatest commandment, except him. Then he says, wait a minute, the second greatest commandment's like the first, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments. So Jesus, as a sage, is saying not only are these critically important. That's what you hear, hear rabbis say. These are critically important. They, they, they're part of the foundation of what it means to be a religious Jew. But Jesus says, yeah, they're more than that. They're the two most important. That's Jesus's yoke. Okay? And so, do you want to take his yoke upon you? Love God, love your neighbor. Pretty simple. Okay? My yoke is easy. And it is pretty easy. Well, not really. Okay, loving God, that's, it, it's a struggle each and every day. Now, the other thing is to memorize their rabbi's words. So when I think about Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, he did not do one sermon, and it was recorded in chapters 5, 6, and 7. He probably taught the, st the stuff, okay, when you read that every day for three years. So what did Matthew do? He memorized it. And so what does he do? He writes it down. That's exactly 
how they learned by repetition. The other one is they wanted to imitate their teacher in all things. For instance, Paul has a wonderful uh, statement in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says this, Be like me, for I'm like him. Can you imagine? He wants to be a disciple of Adonai Yeshua, of Jesus the Lord. So he wants to imitate Jesus. He wants to be a reflection of Jesus in everything that he does. Can you imagine that if you're like Paul, and I think many of you say, yeah, I want to be a reflection. I want to be everything I can for Jesus. Can you imagine getting up in church and saying, by the way, I want to let you know, okay, if you want to know what the disciple is, all, it's very simple, okay? Just look at me, look at my actions, and you'll learn, because I'm like him. What? I, I couldn't get away with that. Okay, Paul does. I mean, there is a strength of the power of the Spirit that says, look at me, okay? I like the word reflection. We want to be a reflection. That was one teacher in one commentary on the New Testament said, this is, we can't be Jesus. He's God. He's Messiah. I mean, that's, that's okay. But there are aspects of him, okay, that we want to re be a reflection of in everything that we do. In Je 1 John, in John's letters, in 1 John 2, 4 through 6, I'm going to paraphrase it. John is saying that if we've come to know him, oh, wait a minute, now we're coming back to the word yada. If you've come to have yada in him, if you have come to abide in his word, abide, okay, that means to live daily by applying God's word. So it's not studying, going to a Bible study. I'm abiding in God's word by taking a Bible study. That's not abiding. Abiding means living his word and doing it, not just learning it. So if you have this deep, close, personal relationship with him, okay, what does John say? You're going to walk like him. Now, for Jewish people, they understand exactly what John is saying, okay? People would say, are you religious? And he said, yeah, look at my walk. Now, in Hebrew, that's halakha, okay? Halakha, walk, walk, halakha. And it means, how do I practice the Torah in my life. Watch me. Okay? And that, and John's a Jew. So he's saying, let me see, if you're truly a disciple, we need to see you living the Torah as Jesus would have. A reflection of Jesus. Here's an awesome example. Okay, and I've done this, many of you have taken the class, but the thing is, is that remember Peter walked on water? Okay, he's in the boat, if you recall. This is in uh, Matthew something or other. <laughs> Luke or Mark. It's someplace in the New Testament, and I will use uh, Paul's statement. It is written, okay? And it's up to you to find it. So, but anyway, Peter's in the boat, and he says to Jesus, he sees Jesus walking in the water. Remember that? And he said, Jesus, if that's you, command me to come out of the boat. And so Jesus, what does he say? Come on. Come on. Okay? So he gets out of the boat. I just wonder if he's asking the question, can I truly be like him? He's walking on water. And Jesus says, I should come out. And what is he doing? He's walking on water. He couldn't believe it. He's just like his rabbi. And that expresses the desire of a disciple. A disciple wants to be like his rabbi. Jesus, you're doing it. I want to do it. 
And then what happens? He sees the storm, the waves, right? Okay, and he starts sinking, and he said, Jesus, save me. And Jesus says, why did you doubt? And you have to ask yourself the question, doubt who? Jesus is still standing there. He doubted himself. Jesus is saying you doubted yourself that you could be like me. That's amazing. I mean, this is an example of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, the disciple wants to be just like the rabbi, but the question is, Peter jumped in. He got right out of there. I mean, Jesus said, come on. What about the other 11? <laughs> They're still in the boat. And I do credit Ray Vanderland for this. Uh, when he took the focus off of Peter and we went back to the boat, he said, I think the focus is in the boat. Yeah, Peter doubted himself and so on, but what about the other 11? Us? Whoa. Came right back to us. Me? Are you in the boat? Are you ready to jump out? I, I'm going to be honest with you. Here's my confession. For me, I am more like the 11 in the boat than Peter. I, I am. I, I, this idea of jumping out of the boat and walking on water, if Jesus called me, that it doesn't compute. And it bothers me every day of my life. And maybe that's the good thing. Because it bothers me. Am I being like him today? And I'm not worried about miracles. I'm not worried about walking on water. But am I like him? Jesus was a teacher. We read this in Matthew 4.23. Teaching in all in the Galilee and in their synagogues. Matthew 5.2. Right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth to teach. Why? Because that's what rabbis do. Rabbis teach by sitting down. I'm sitting down. I'm not running around like I normally do. I'll be running around tomorrow night. But I'm going to be, I'm teaching Torah, so I'm going to try to be teaching like a rabbi, like him. Okay? Sitting down. But in Matthew 5, 2, it says he was teaching. Now, we come back to this. Let's stop here for a second. We go back to Abraham. Why did God choose Abraham? to teach. If we're a disciple of Jesus, what are we going to do? Teach. And it's not doing what I do. That's not the issue. I remember a dear sister in the Lord used to go overseas many times, and she would be teaching summer Bible school in Europe. What was the country again, Irene? Latvia. Latvia. Exactly. And I remember you took some of the material that you learned in Hebrew Heritage 1 years ago and used it there as well. So I, that was such a, oh, that was such an honor for me. It was just amazing stuff. Teaching, okay? Missionary trips or whatever. Kids at home, friends. Teaching constantly. And Abraham. So it's interesting. Us, to be like Yeshua, and now we can say, wait a minute, one of the characteristics of Abraham is that he taught. This is the same. This is the same then as it is now. Nothing changed. Amazing. As Abraham was sent, so Jesus was sent, and Jesus sent us. As Abraham was to teach, Jesus taught. We're to be like him as disciples. We are to teach. And Abraham obeyed God to the ultimate. And so too Jesus.
obeyed his father to the ultimate and released himself as the sacrifice of God, the blessing to all nations through his father and through the cross. But the eulogy of Abraham is not over. We're going to go into lesson 57. We're going to continue to focus in on Abraham's life as we remember his death. Being a disciple of Yeshua is like Abraham's life and his walk with God. So what more can the Lord show us as related to Abraham? Related to our father by faith. We'll go see the amazing things that the Lord has for us in the Torah as we go into Lesson 57. See you then. Shalom. Shalom.